0: You're listening to Ask Nurse Alice, presented by Nurse.org, where Alice Benjamin combines no nonsense advice with thought provoking interviews. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Ask Nurse Alice podcast, the show where we talk about anything and everything nursing and healthcare related. I'm your host, Alice Benjamin, clinical nurse specialist and family nurse practitioner and chief nursing officer here at Nurse.org. Uh, and I'm really excited about today's episode. Here on this platform, we love talking about you know, things that impact our profession, but also things that impact us as consumers and that also help us to be better nurses. So this month, April, is Sarcoidosis Awareness Month. And so I wanted to raise some awareness to that because I believe it's something that we've all heard, we've learned it. But unless you're actively treating patients with sarcoidosis, you might forget what that is and actually how impactful uh, that condition is to someone's quality of life. And so it's really important that we bring on an expert uh, to talk about it on the show. She's actually a family nurse practitioner of over 18 years, very well experienced, and she also lives with sarcoidosis as well as psoriasis. And she's going to talk to us about what it's like being a healthcare provider, as well as a patient dealing with these chronic illnesses and how she balances and juggles the two. So guys, please welcome to the show, Amy Cobb. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for coming, and we're really excited to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your nursing journey?
1: Sure. I went straight out of high school to nursing school, so I finished my BSN at the ripe old age of 22, and I liked everything during clinicals, so I did what most people who like everything do. I did med (laughs) surge, get a little bit of everything. So I did med surge for about four years before I started my NP schooling. So I went and did my two year masters and finished that crazily enough eighteen years ago. And because I like a little bit of everything, I did family practice. So I've been doing primary care as a nurse practitioner for eighteen years in the outpatient setting.
0: Okay, good. Uh, and I'm glad that you know you're sharing your experience with mid surge because sometimes people kind of poo poo on mid and I think it's a great place to start because. You got to learn a lot of things. So it really keeps you on your toes, keeps you familiar with everything.
1: I could not trade those days in the hospital, working the floor, going from a DVT in one room, pneumonia to the next room, to a colon resection in the next room. You know, you just, you can't trade those experiences.
0: Absolutely. And so then you went into family practice. So now you have, you know, the authority to assess, diagnose, treat, and all those things uh, beyond the scope. Of care that an RN has, how's that been? How do? What would you say to people who are who are bed who are RNs who are thinking about that career jump?
1: I would say go for it if you want both the responsibility, the liability, and I hate to say it, but some of the work from home. Because I do miss those bedside nursing days. Yes, I might not give report till seven thirty, and you know, be scrambling to finish up my charts. But when I was home, I was home. I could not chart from home, at least hospital nursing. You know, Mm -hmm. I couldn't do anything from home. it, It all stayed at work. And as a nurse practitioner, unless you're in a specialty or a very unique job position, a lot of us are finishing documentation at night, fielding calls at night, you know, holidays, weekends, vacations. Primary care, I would say, is the biggest threat to the work-life balance. Just Mm. based on my colleagues, you know, I've done a little moonlighting in pediatrics and GI, and those were fantastic as far as work-life balance in comparison to primary care. Now, like you said, we don't want to poo-poo down on med-surg and we don't want to on primary care because we need primary care providers, the specialists don't live if we do not feed them. We've got to have our primary care providers. And it's very rewarding. It's, it's rewarding to treat generations of families. I may treat the great-grandmother, the grandmother, the mother, and the baby. Oh, and, wow. you know, you can't get that anywhere else in medicine. I think that's really important.
0: And, you know, and thank you for the, for the candid reality check. You know, I'm a nurse practitioner too now. But a lot of people who are not, they romanticize, oh, I'm going to be MP. I'm going to get away from this direct patient care stuff. It's going to be all beautiful and glam and glitz. And then you're stuck writing notes at eight, yes. nine o'clock at night or fielding phone calls, refilling prescriptions yes. and those type of things. So to whom much is given, much is required, guys. So just know that. Okay. So there's still a lot of work to do. It's just maybe a different type of work.
1: but It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's very rewarding, you know, and you have so much autonomy. You can diagnose, treat, manage chronic conditions. I mean, it's extremely rewarding, but if you do have a family and I do, I'm a mom of three, you know, you get to where you're trying to just keep all the balls in the air and, and balance everything. And I think that's what we're going to talk about too, with having a chronic illness. Yes.
0: And then also, I mean, in primary care, I mean, uh, we, a lot of early ident- screening, early identification, yes. those types of things, but you also do a lot of management of chronic illnesses, chronic conditions. And uh, you uh, have been very open about sharing your own personal journey with a chronic condition. You have sarcoidosis, which again, April is Sarcoidosis Awareness Month and psoriasis. Can you mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about uh, what it's like also not only being provider, but the, now the, you know the patient? with
1: a chronic illness? Well, I'd like to start by telling you how it was diagnosed because prior to my diagnosis, I had heard of sarcoidosis. I had had a few patients in the hospital early in my career, med surge days, um, and they had pulmonary fibrosis by the time I saw them. So they had pulmonary fibrosis and I was looking on their chart and the pulmonologist said, oh, that's from their sarcoidosis. You know, it's kind of a weird word. So it kind of sticks in your memory They were on oxygen. Some of them had heart failure as a comorbidity. They were sick patients. They had decreased mobility. Their quality of life wasn't fantastic. So let's fast forward (laughs) to me being in practice as a nurse practitioner, busy mom of three. I was 40 years old. This was six years ago. I've just turned 46. And I was working full time, you know, just doing my thing. And I noticed where I parked in my clinic was up on a hill. And after work, I would walk to my car and I would become short of breath. And I don't mean like, oh, I'm just a little winded. I would be, you know, kind of huffing and puffing. And I was an active mom. You know, I had a four-year-old at the time and I was used to going to the gym. So I'm thinking something is not right. I've never been a smoker. I don't have asthma. Why am I getting so short of breath? So I did, as we all do in medicine, I went to my colleagues because that's what we all do. (laughs) So I went to my friends in cardiology because I also noticed I was very syncopal. I was feeling dizzy. I thought I might fall into the floor. I was having these odd um, symptoms that were, they seemed unrelated. I was feeling a little feverish. I just wasn't really sure what was going on. My hands were turning a little blue and getting real cold. So you know, I'm a provider of many years. I'm thinking, okay, this is vascular. I must have some kind of occlusion. Something is going on. Something strange. So I went to cardiology, had a complete workup. Labs were normal. EKG was normal. Chest x-ray was normal. All my colleagues said, Amy, you're not diabetic. You don't smoke. You're too healthy. Nothing's wrong with you. Well, this is my message to all your audience. Listen to your body because Mm. I knew something was wrong. So I trudged along for about a month, you know, completing more tests. And finally, I had an echocardiogram. For your audience who may not know what that is, it's an ultrasound of the heart. So kind of checking the valvular function of the heart, the cardiac output. And that was the first test that came back abnormal. And my colleague in cardiology called me and said, oh, yeah, it looks good. You just got a little pulmonary hypertension, which is an increased pressure between the heart and lungs. And I said, well, why would I have that? And she said, oh, I don't know. You probably have asthma, right? No, ma'am. I sure do not. Oh, well, did you smoke, you know, in college? No. So I knew that was kind of odd. But again, my symptoms just kind of kept worsening. I eventually developed a cough. I would cough Mm. when I ate. I would cough when I talked. I would cough when I tried to lay down. So I finally decided I needed to see somebody outside of my clinic. You know, sometimes we just need to be a patient. We don't need to be a nurse. We don't need to be a nurse practitioner. We just Mm -hmm. need to be a patient. So I actually went to an outside clinic and that provider said, you know, I think you need a chest CT because your chest X-ray was normal, but your CT might show more details. And also by that point, I had an episode where the left side of my face went numb. I was driving. I had my kids in the car and I had this really strange sensation down the left side of my face. My breathing became very irregular. I should have gone to the ER, but, you know, we're stubborn. So she said, you know, let's get a brain MRI. What if you have a brain tumor? Like, let's just just rule out all the really bad stuff because I just don't. She was a mom, too. She's like, I just don't like the sounds of this. So I had that done on a Thursday. We went on fall break as a family for vacation. That following Monday, I got a phone call saying you have huge lymph nodes in your chest. You have lymphoma. We think, you know, this is what we think. You need to see an oncologist and you have white matter brain lesions. You probably have MS. You need to see a neurologist. So again, I was healthy. I was 40. My youngest child was four. So I will skip over what all of the testing included, but it included a bronchoscopy. They wanted to do a media stenoscopy where you drill a hole. These were things I had to look up. I didn't know what that was. They drill a hole in your sternum and get lymph nodes out of your um, mediastinum because I had mediastinal and hyler adenopathy on my CT scan. I knew I had a big supraclavicular node. So I said, hold on. I don't want to go do that. Let me see if you can get what you need out of this. Again, they were trying to rule out lymphoma. I saw neurology to see if I had MS. He said, I don't think it's MS. Those could be non-specific brain lesions. And again, I didn't have my sarcoid diagnosis yet. So we were, it was kind of oh. like putting puzzle pieces together. Yeah. But the supraclavicular biopsy is what showed sarcoidosis. And so for your audience, the way to get a sarcoidosis diagnosis is tissue biopsy. And the pathology report will say non-caseating granulomas. Sarcoidosis is a granulomatous disease that can affect any organ in the body. It can affect eyes, brain, spinal cord, peripheral nerves, lymph nodes, lungs, spleen, liver, kidneys, I mean, you name it. So if you want to fast forward to where I am now, I've had so many scans and biopsies because different symptoms would pop up. I have esophageal dysmotility as a result of it. It's kind of attacked my esophagus. I don't have any peristalsis. So I have to take a PPI. I take a Meprazole in the morning and an H2 in the evening. I take Pepsid in the evening. I have to chew my food kind of slowly. I ended up with lesions on my spleen. Those were sarcoid lesions. They didn't do a biopsy because of the risk of splenic rupture. But once I started Humira, which I'll get to in just a minute, they resolved. I've had a kidney biopsy that showed sarcoidosis had attacked my kidney. So it can go anywhere. wants to, and it just has a mind of its own. It is in the autoimmune family. It's more of an inflammatory disease, but it is treated by rheumatology and it's in the autoimmune family.
0: Wow. Guys, I hope you're listening because that was like a whole lesson, a whole lecture in itself, made easy, I mean, understandable, and told it in a compassionate first-person way. Now, Amy, I want to ask you because Again, you are, you know, fairly younger, healthy, had kids, hadn't smoked, all of these things. I mean, you've been a provider. You know what's healthy and what's not healthy. But when you initially started to present with some symptoms, it sounded like they said that it looks like you have a little bit of pulmonary hypertension. It was kinda of like not poo-pooed, but just like, oh
1: eh, whoops. Eh, yeah.
0: Eh, like Yeah. Right. Like eh. Well I mean it's not that bad. It's like, eh, uh, it's a little something, but you know, not anything that they're rushing you to the emergency room for. But you know, how did that feel? To know that you've kind of, you've had these experiences. Your symptoms are real. Yes. You know what they, how they make you feel. And then to have
1: a colleague kind of, eh, I, you. Felt I mean. Dismissed, quite frankly. Yeah. I felt overlooked. I felt dismissed. Actually, you know, one of the questions when preparing for this talk with you was, has it changed my practice? And absolutely it has. I have heard from all of my physicians, from my main rheumatologist to just my gynecologist. Oh, Amy, you look great. You don't look sick. And that really does not validate the patient. And Mm -hmm. I finally told my rheumatologist one day, he's like, you look great. You look great. I said, do you want me to come in here with no makeup and a cane? Because I can. (laughs) You know, but we're out here trying to do the best we can. And it made me view my patients who have chronic illness in a completely different light. Cause they come in, they might be having a good day. They might be feeling good. And here I am. And I don't want to diminish or invalidate their real feelings because I'm supposed to be their
0: safe place. Exactly. Guys, I was doing some research on this and it's called medical gaslighting. Yes. You know, medical gaslighting. Don't do it. Yes. Don't do it. Please acknowledge the patient, what they're feeling. You know, again, they may look great, but inside they may not feel great. Don't dismiss their symptoms. Don't eh, yeah any of their symptoms. Listen to what they're saying. Because we tell them, like like you were saying, like, listen to your body. Yes. In order to listen to your body, someone actually has to listen.
1: This experience made me realize if I didn't have my medical knowledge, if I was just Amy Cobb, a regular 40-year-old woman, I don't know that I'd be where I am today because I pushed for a diagnosis, but most patients don't. If if a doctor or a nurse practitioner or a PA says you're okay or eh, at your pulmonary hypertension, by the time it gets rechecked, it could have really progressed. Things could have gotten worse. So we really, really need to listen to our bodies and listen to our patients.
0: Exactly. I think that's how we, We build trust because if a patient doesn't feel like you're listening or, you know, that they're, what they're saying isn't valid, you're not paying any attention, not taking, you know, again, not taking it serious, they may be less inclined to come back to you for a follow-up or they might say, oh, well, they told me it was nothing. Maybe they're going to say, eh, and then their symptoms are going to get worse and worse and worse. And by the time they see you, it's... Bar
1: gone, And I would like to speak on that for a moment. We are in an age where a patient has a portal sign-in and honey, they are looking at their liver ultrasound. They are looking at their echocardiogram. They can read their MRI. Gone are the days where you didn't have to tell a patient they had a benign liver cyst or a benign renal cyst. I see them all the time. And so I have had to reframe my conversations with patients and say, yes, this is your report. I print it out for them because I have been that patient. You know, instead of just saying your scan was normal. Well, what does that mean? So I will print it out for him and say, you know, this says you have a little one centimeter cyst on your kidney. That is normal. If I put a hundred people in a gym and ultrasounded all their kidneys, probably 40 or 50 of them would have a cyst either on their kidney or their liver. And this, that just comes with my NP experience. But I feel like, we have gotten out of the age of really explaining what our diagnostics show, what our imaging shows, what our lab work shows. I mean, when's the last time your provider actually sat down and went over your lab work with you? Never. But right. we need to do that because these patients have access and they are Googling every line of their CBC. Let me tell you. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think, and again, to like you have this experience, and I'm glad that you say that. You know, if I did this scan, forty to fifty people would have
1: something like this. You know, it's so it's normal. Um, it's not uncommon. It's not uncommon.
0: It's, uh, it's not uncommon. We'll keep an eye just, on it.
1: There you go. And that's what I tell them. You know, my brain lesions. I have some brain lesions. I know I have them. So twenty years from now, if I develop dementia, I won't be shocked because I know they were there at that time. If that makes sense. Right.
0: And I also think that's important. So, like you said, like. Right now, something may not be an issue, but at least someone's aware. So if if something happens down the road, they're not going to be as shocked by, oh, my gosh, no one ever told me. But, honey, you had these lesions this entire time. Right. But no one explained to them. And that's when they get resentful of healthcare professionals. And that's when they think we're hiding stuff, we're lying, or we're not doing our job. Correct. So
1: take the extra 30 seconds and explain to them. And. You know, the pulmonary hypertension, for example, you know, I spoke with my general cardiologist. I said, you know, I've read that sarcoid can be a cause of this and that it can worsen. I said, I think I'd like to see a pulmonary hypertension specialist. Oh, yeah, that's a great idea. But I had to suggest that, you know, that pulmonary hypertension can be bad for business. I'm just going to say it. You know, it can end up in heart or lung transplant, just, you know, down the road. So I want to get a jump on that so you know that's the other thing is as far as being a patient and a provider use your knowledge that you do have to advocate for yourself and to also think about those other patients who don't have your knowledge that might just be little miss jones out there with this going on help her get the care that she needs
0: you know take that extra step take that extra minute to explain to your patient even if it's nothing that's that you believe is life-threatening in this moment, but just help them to understand that. I think develops trust.
1: It absolutely it develops does. trust.
0: They'll come to you. They'll be more inclined to listen and follow the plan of care. Be honest when they can't or why they don't want to, and we can really bridge that relationship. So, so there's sarcoidosis, and then you also recently had another diagnosis in the not um, in the recent year, uh, psoriasis.
1: Yes. So I was so to begin my sarcoidosis treatment. I had to take prednisone, which is the devil. You know, those of us in the autoimmune world call them the devil's tic-tacs. So I was on 60 milligrams of prednisone a day. And you can imagine trying to work as a nurse practitioner and be nice to people when you are literally like about to jump out of your skin. So that was horrible. I weaned down. My pulmonologist wanted me to do a year taper because you get the moon face, you have all the horrible side effects. It's horrible. I don't wish it on my worst enemy, but I was able to wean off after six months because I was dosing up. So when you get a diagnosis like lupus, like sarcoidosis, anything in that autoimmune family, sometimes psoriasis just depending You'll do a prednisone to start, and then they put you on what's called an SSA, which is a steroid sparing agent. Those are your methotrexate, your cell sept sometimes. Methotrexate is what I started, and I was dosing up on that while I was weaning off Imuran. That's the other one I was thinking of. I was weaning off the prednisone. So I actually stayed well and fairly stable on methotrexate for four years until Last February, I developed a uveitis, which is a painful red eye, and (laughs) that came out of nowhere. And about four to five days later, the back of my neck broke out. And I mean broke out into a huge, it almost looked herpetic in nature, but it crossed the midline. So we knew it wasn't shingles all over the back of my neck. Painful, burned, itched. It was awful. And of course, we're in times of masks stethoscopes, face shields, scrubs, because I'm working primary care in a year of COVID. And it was awful. I was getting those cooling towels like athletes have, you know, during between games. I would wrap a moist cooling towel around my neck like a scarf just to stay comfortable at work. Oh no! So I went to my dermatologist and my rheumatologist. She did two biopsies because sarcoid can affect the skin. So she was like, I wonder if this is sarcoidosis of your skin. She kind of didn't believe the first biopsy because it didn't have a typical psoriasis presentation, but they both proved to be psoriasis. So she and my rheumatologist put their heads together and decided to put me on Humira. Because it's an actual biologic. So you'll start with the steroid sparing after prednisone. And if needed, you'll bump up to a biologic, which is like your Enbrel, your Humira. There's tons of them now. But I will say I do feel much better. It's kept my sarcoidosis and my psoriasis under control. I've been on it about a year. My methotrexate was a once a week injection. My Humira is every two weeks. Methotrexate kind of makes you feel like you're in quicksand and drugged and you just kind of feel yuck for about 12 hours so I would take it on Friday evenings and just kind of sleep it off cuz my kids always had activities on the weekends but Humira I can take and I can't even tell that I took it so
0: I have to say you know at, with your healthcare background and knowledge
1: mm-hmm.
0: you are very involved. you can advocate for yourself you understood <laughs> the language that was happening with the providers now I dare I ask it probably was still a little confusing or uh, for you as a patient, oh, yeah. even with all of your experience and knowledge.
1: So back to all the organs that have been affected, I went from taking Singular because I live in Georgia and seasonal allergies. So I went from taking a multivitamin and a Singular a day to I have a pillbox for the morning and a pillbox for the evening because my kidney... Involvement now, I'm on Lucentapril 2.5 for renal protection. Like I've got all these things. And so to say humbling, depressing, like the mental health effects of a chronic illness, because, you know, I prescribe medicine. I don't take it. (laughs) It has been very humbling. But I will say I have had patients that are like, I don't want to take that blood pressure pill. I don't want to take that metformin. And I have gone in my office and pulled out my phone and said, I want to show you something. And I will show them a picture of my med box. And they'll say, whose is that? And I'm like, that's mine. Do you think I want to take all of that? No. I said, but I want to live. And a lot of them don't have young children, but they have grandchildren. And I'll say, how old are your grandchildren? It's a sobering conversation for both of us. Mm -hmm. And they're like, Amy, what's wrong with you? I didn't know anything was wrong with you. I said, exactly. I said, I'm going to take care of myself. And that's one message. I have the best rheumatologist, but one message he gave me in the beginning, I was down. I mean, this came out of nowhere. And it's not a disease that you did something wrong to get it, you know? So it's like, I've been trying to live right. (laughs) And uh, he said, Amy, I want you to feel so good on your medication and your regimen that you forget you have it, except every morning when you pop them in your mouth. Every week or two weeks when you do your injection, every evening when you pop your medicine in your mouth, and when you come see me every three months. He said, I want you to feel good enough that you don't even remember you have it. And that's made me reframe so I can tell my patients that now. I can say, Mr. Jones, I know you don't want to take that, but I want you to live a long time. And if you will do this for me, you might even forget that you have diabetes, hypertension, whatever it is.
0: I am so glad that you you love your patients enough to be vulnerable and share your own experience. And I think that's how we get back to like the you've been to you've been touched, the you've been caring, the, you know, because I think sometimes people feel like because we're the providers, we're not, patients, we're invincible. That, that we're invincible. I thought I, I was, was invincible. In I'm not going to lie. Yeah, you do. Exactly. And I think a lot of us, you know, we think we're invincible and then people like yourself or we'd have an experience or an encounter with the, with our health
1: or Or a a cancer diagnosis or a cancer diagnosis. Right. I've worked with a wonderful, beautiful radiologist and she developed breast cancer in her thirties and she came in my office and was just kind of crying and I had already been sick. And I told her, I said, you are the same, beautiful, smart, amazing radiologist you were yesterday. And you had breast cancer yesterday. You just didn't know it. And it took her a minute and she was like, you're right. And if we can all just kind of reframe ourselves and some of those conversations with our patients, because in that moment, you feel like your world is ending. You really do. But you have to say, because who knows how long I had this before I was actually diagnosed and I can't Mm -hmm. change it, but I want to live. So I'm going to just keep one of my mantras is keep moving forward.
0: I love it. Keep moving forward. This has been such a a great message. I mean, for one, thank you for raising awareness and reminding us of what sarcoidosis is and giving us a first person testament of what it's like. And you've also mentioned some medications and some treatments that we as nurses should be familiar with. Mm -hmm. But what I really like is that the positive message that you, that you have and how inspiring you've been to your patients. I wish more healthcare providers were like that. Uh, I really, really do. Because sometimes I hear the horror stories of, oh, my doctor and my nurse practitioner didn't tell me this, or they didn't tell me that. And sometimes it's real disheartening. And, you know, we can advocate for ourselves, but what about the people who don't have a nurse or a doctor in their family, Mm
1: -hmm. just,
0: you know, to, to join them? We need to be those advocates for them.
1: Well, I did have one final thing I wanted to just recommend, because now that I've been living this life, my disease is rare. You know, about 200,000 people in the U.S. have sarcoidosis, so it's not that common. People don't know how to pronounce it. They don't know what it is, so they just don't say anything. You know, it was like Mm -hmm. when they thought I might have lymphoma, that was a big deal, and they were going to bring me a meal, and they were going to babysit my kids, but since I don't have anything they've ever heard of, I don't need that, right? (laughs) So I made a little list of ways you can support somebody who has a chronic illness, and this might be good for your audience who are healers to tell family members because they might have a patient who's coming in and said, my daughter just got diagnosed with lupus and they're crying because they're depressed about their daughter. And you can say, and I don't know what to do. What can I do? And so I wrote down just a few things that oh, sure. that are good for somebody who has a chronic illness because it's not going anywhere. Okay. So the very first and foremost important tip for a loved one to do is to learn about your disease. If somebody will look it up, even if it is something that's more common like breast cancer or colon cancer, just familiarize yourself with it so that you'll know maybe some of the treatments that your loved one might be going through. So learn about our disease. You could pick up a prescription or supplies for us. I sleep with oxygen for my pulmonary hypertension. So my husband fills my water bottle. He can't fix my lungs, but he can fill my water bottle on my oxygen tank. I've gotten him now where he can help me fill up my pill box. So if I am just too busy or don't feel good, I've got it all written down and he can fill in my little boxes for me. You can offer to run an errand because those of us that are still working, we are so tired by the time we get done. We've got a little extra tired on top of our regular tired. So if you want to take my kid to practice or if you want to go get my whatever, I will let you do it. You can still cook a meal for somebody that doesn't have cancer. (laughs) And I'm not downplaying cancer, but, you know, some things are just so recognizable and there's a lot of support behind that. But there are other very real chronic illnesses that also can wipe a patient out. So... That and then some people don't know if they should ask you about it or not ask you about it. It's like, oh, she's in a good mood. Maybe I shouldn't say anything, but you're never going to go wrong by saying, hey, how have you been feeling lately? That's not negative, positive, And that shows that you remembered that I do have something going on. And if I'm feeling great, I'm like, I've actually been feeling good. Or if I haven't, I know that you care and I might feel open yeah. enough to talk to you. Because even with my own close friends and family, some of them don't know what to say. So they don't say anything at all.
0: Yeah, They're like walking on eggshells, right. not sure what to say because they don't want to offend you.
1: Depressed, you. Stir up something
0: right. if, you're, if you're feeling fine, you know, if you're in an okay mood. So I, I understand mm-hmm. that.
1: Go into an appointment now that people can have a loved one. You know, I see about yeah. 10 to 12 specialists. So and you know I live outside of Atlanta but I have to go to Atlanta for some of my specialists so hey if you're off that day we could make a shopping and a lunch and I'm not alone in that waiting room in that car and I'm not as down about ooh I have this disease it's just like having somebody accompany with me you know and oh we're going to go out to lunch afterwards Mhm so those are just some practical mm-hmm. tips for family and friends
0: I think those are some great tips and those are some things that we can share with our patients and their family and just a jump reminder for ourselves. We should be, you know, we can, we can use do these things for people that we know as mm-hmm. well. So Amy, that has been some great, yeah, I wish you were my provider. I would love having you as a provider. You seem so warm and welcome and just so understanding and compassionate. And I think at the end of the day, yes, we all want, you know, the, the, the brightest uh, provider, which I'm, I'm sure you are absolutely right. Uh, brighter than shiny, uh, shiny star, but, also that compassion yes. that someone who I can go and feel comfortable with when I'm in that room and can like really let it all hang out and tell you how I really feel what's really mm-hmm. going on and know that you're there to help me and inspire me and at times maybe even give me a little tough love is when appropriate
1: absolutely humanity kindness that's what it's all about
0: yes it is guys it's the right thing it to is. do. you got to develop Let's develop that dashboard somewhere because it don't exist. We we'll see all the other things: the falls, the restraints, pneumococcal
1: the, vaccine. You know
0: all of <laughs> right, all of those things. But where is the where is the dashboard that says be a kind
1: exactly. human, be
0: a caring person? Yeah. Well, Amy, you have been a delight to talk to. I I have to say that I feel a lot more knowledgeable about psoriasis, and you reminded me of a lot of things that we could and should be doing. Mm-hmm. You know, guys, take a few moments to be. Uh, to explain some things to your patients. I mean, you'd want that. you want that for yourself. You'd want that for your family members. So we have to remind ourselves, how would you want to be treated? Mm-hmm. Do unto others as you would like them to do unto yes. you. There we go. Before we let you go, where can we follow you? Like do you have any upcoming projects, things, how
1: can we support you and learn more? From so you? I started blogging last summer because COVID about did me in <laughs> just to be honest in primary care. You know, it was killing the hospital staff, you know, just mentally, physically, emotionally. But us and outpatient, we were testing, treating, trying to keep keep patients out of the hospital. Our patients were getting sick and going to the hospital. So I needed a creative outlet. So I started blogging. So my blog is Tailored Intent. It's T-A-Y-L-O-R-E-D. That's my middle name's Taylor. And then Intent, because I try to write about living with intention, not perfection, because we, on, we're we never going to reach that perfection, but I want to be intentional with my words, with my time, and with my actions.
0: You guys make sure to flood her, you know, follow, like, comment, all of those great things, support her. Amy, I love the work that you're doing. Thank you for being an excellent role model in the nursing profession. We need more providers like you, and I salute you, and Nurse.org does too. So. Thank you so much for being a guest and sharing all of your knowledge and compassion with our audience. We appreciate it. I'm sure you're inspiring some nursing students, some future nursing students, heck, some nurses and NPs right now as well. We're all should be inspired, guys. Um, So this has been a great episode, guys. Thank you so much for listening and tuning in to the Ask for Styles podcast, brought to you by nurse.org, who, by the way, loves and supports nurses, from nursing students all the way to new grads, APRNs, to retired nurses. Hey, once a nurse, always a nurse. We love you. So until next time, guys, be kind to one another, make good choices, and live well, my friends. Thanks for listening to Ask Nurse Alice. Visit nurse.org for nursing career, education, and community resources.